This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. Happy New Year. Daphna, Priya is here today. How are you guys That's doing? That's right. Doing good. Happy New Year to everybody. Good. Happy New Year, guys. Uh, Priya, we've missed you. It's been a while. Uh-huh. I know. Thanks for having me back. I'm <laughs> super excited to be here at the beginning of the year. Um, yeah, excited. Yeah. yeah, this is going to be fun. So we have our first journal club of the year. There's a lot of articles to cover. Uh, we did take a week off of journal club, so we have to catch up today. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get started, before we begin, um, we do have to do some, uh, take care of some business for the people who have participated in our end of year giveaway. Uh, thank you to uh, all of you. Uh, we could not have been uh, more touched by your messages and uh, by the affection shared with us on social media, by email. And uh, the uh, winner of this year's giveaway, which was, again, generously sponsored by uh, Wreck-It Me Johnson, is uh, Dr. and uh, apologies if I mispronounced your name, Dr. Piawet Arichai, uh, who is on Twitter at Neo Arichai. Uh, so we will be in touch with you, Piawet, to uh, get you some of the details and get you your uh, brand new iPad uh in the mail as soon as possible. So congrats. Yay. Yay, exactly. (laughs) We love giveaway day. (laughs) And with that, I guess we can, um, yeah, I guess we can begin. What'd you guys say? Sounds good. If my uh, chief used to say, if if we don't begin, however, will we finish? That's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I guess, do you want me to get started, Daphne? You want to go? No, you go. All right. I always, I always ask, and I always, uh, I'm pushed okay. in the front of the line. I'm going to start. <laughs> I'm going to start off with a with a uh, with a nice paper um, that is going to be a great starter for us today. It's it was published in the Journal of Pediatrics. Uh, first author is Miren Dudazia, and the t- the title of the article is Diagnostic Performance and Patient Outcomes with C-Reactive Protein Use in Early Onset Sepsis Evaluations. So starting off the year, again, giving CRP a closer look again. Um, The reason I picked this article is really because um, it doesn't seem like, no matter what we say about CRP, it doesn't seem to go away. Uh, And and it's always there. And and so I think this was interesting in the context of early onset sepsis. 
Um, and so that's why I picked this this paper. So the background is interesting, and and it sets up some 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 I think some ground rules. Uh, number one, they're saying that the clinical utility of a test can be measured using two approaches, right? It's diagnostic performance and the impact it has on patient outcomes. And in the case of early onset sepsis, the gold standard is really the blood slash CSF culture with or without additional clinical findings of infection. So the questions that the authors are posing is, what is the clinical utility of CRP in the diagnosis of early onset sepsis using two separate approaches? They wanted to look at this from measuring the diagnostic performance and the impact it has on patient outcomes uh, with and without routine use, as they've defined in the background. So they conducted a retrospective cohort study of all infants that were uh, admitted uh, between day zero and day three of life, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be really early onset sepsis, um, to two NICUs in the University of Pennsylvania health uh, system. And they divided basically the two periods into period A and period B. Period A starts from 2009 to 2014. And the reason that period is picked is because that's when routine CRP use was done for evaluation of early onset sepsis. Then they sort of transitioned to the uh, early onset sepsis risk calculator. So there's like a buffer period that they've sort of removed. And then you enter period B, which is 2018 to 2020. And that is uh, when really CRP was not routinely used. They collected a ton of data through this retrospective, uh, their retrospective uh, uh, nature, and and through the EMR. So you can you can get go through the paper for that information. Um, the definition of early onset sepsis was defined as the isolation of some organism from the blood and or CSF before three days of life. They defined the use of prolonged antibiotics as pr antibiotics administered for more than two days uh, in the absence of pathogen isolation from the blood or CSF. So almost like culture negative kind of sepsis situation. Uh, CRP cutoff values. I think that's obviously something that we're all interested in. Uh, they use the CRP of 10 or more for the main analysis of diagnostic performance, but they also ran uh, an, an analyzed diagnostic performance metric for other threshold between five and 15. So uh, they looked at if CRP were, were around the 10, and, but they never went below five. So I think that's also something that's important to, uh, to note. So what were some of the relevant patient outcomes that they defined? So they did looked at the proportions of NICU infants on whom cultures were done both before three days of life and after four days of life. They looked at the rates of positive blood or CSF cultures. They looked at the time from birth to obtaining the blood culture and, and antibiotic administration among those culture-confirmed cases, uh, the rate of antibiotic initiation, the duration of antibiotic use uh, in the absence of positive cultures, the length of stay, the transfer to a higher level of care, and all-cause mortality um, overall and in the first seven days after birth. So far, so good? All right, I get nods. Um, <laughs> uh, so what were some of the results? From uh, 2009 to 2014, 10,000 uh, and something infants were admitted uh, to the study NICUs with a median gestational age of 37 weeks and a birth weight average of 2,800 grams. A total of 74.5% of infants had at least one blood culture obtained on between day zero to three after birth. And of them, only 14% also had a CSF culture. So I think one of you guys is going to talk to us about uh, meningitis, and, uh, and, but I thought, I thought that was an That's interesting right. study. Um, among infants with a blood culture obtained on day zero to three, 41, which is 
0.5% were diagnosed with early onset sepsis. So it's still, it's still pretty low. And the most common organism is GBS, 39%, and E. coli, 39%. Um, Dr. Karen Popolo is on this uh, paper as well, and she's extensively published on their data. So anyway, so I'm sure you can find that in some of these articles that she published with uh, Dustin in pediatrics as well. Uh, there were no infants. That was something that I'm sure, Daphna, you're going to appreciate. There were no infants with a positive CSF cultures in the absence of a positive blood culture. That's so interesting, given the article that I guess I'll present after this one. But <laughs> Right. I mean, you could, you could wonder... Um, yeah, I don't remember reading in the article whether they only did CS. I mean, I don't remember exactly what was the trigger to do a CSF culture. So mm-hmm. if the trigger to do a CSF mm-hmm. culture was a positive right. blood culture, then maybe maybe then it's maybe. not so surprising. Right. <laughs> um, the diagnostic performance of CRP. So how did it do? A total of 9,000 and something infants had one or more CRP obtained between day zero and three. And of them, 23% had at least one value above 10 or equal to 10. Among these, um, among 7,500 something infants with a blood culture on day zero to three, 98.6% also had a CRP obtained at that time. And that's going to be the population that's going to be interesting to us where we have both to compare. With increasing duration between time when blood culture and CRP were obtained, the sensitivity of CRP increased while specificity decreased. So let's do a little bit of board review since it's the beginning of the year, right? So sensitivity and specificity. I mean, I don't know how you guys remember that. I usually use the spin and snout situation. So the sensitivity means you're going to have a test that's going to include, that's going to flag a lot of kids as potential sepsis, right? And and it's going to be very rough and tough. There's not going to be, it's not going to be going to capture all of them but it's also going to capture a ton of kids who don't have sepsis and spin is going to be something that rules in the disease so spin meaning you're not going to catch a lot of them but the ones you do catch you're going to be pretty certain that they have sepsis so that's if you needed a refresher on sensitivity versus specificity so let's read that again um when you extend the duration between the time when the blood culture and the CRP uh, were obtained. So like you, you, you don't draw the CRP as uh, the sensitivity of CRP increases while the specificity decreased. Further, CRP obtained four to 24 hours after blood culture had the highest area under the curve on the receiving operating characteristic curve. Alternate thresholds of CRP demonstrated similar pattern with the highest sensitivity at low cutoffs, farther from time of blood culture, and highest specificity for high cutoff, closer to the time of blood culture, which is not really surprising. And if you go through some of these uh, table, you can see that, for example, um, when you're looking at CRP within four hours from the blood culture, um, the sensitivity is like 41%, the specificity is 89.9%, um, and the, the positive predictive value is like 2.3%, so not great. When you go to four to 24 hours, it's like 80% sensitive, 76% specific, and then 24 to 72, it's 89% sensitive, and the specificity goes down to 55. And then they have these tables where they go at like, if it's five, if it's seven, if it's 10, if it's 15, and the same thing really happens, which is that um, as you have a lower threshold, so if you have a CRP of five, then 
your sensitivity is high. So for example, if you look at a CRP collected within, I'm going to give you the example in table three, I'm going to go through the first uh, the first row so that we can just go through an example. But like, let's say you talk about, I'm getting a CRP within four hours from the blood culture being drawn, assuming that's sort of done around the time of birth because you're doing your early sepsis evaluation. Fine. If the CRP is five or more, then the sensitivity is 50% and the specificity is 85%. And as the, the CRP increases, so like, let's say from you go from five, then you go to 10, then the sensitivity drops from 50 to 41%, but your specificity increases from 85 to 89. And then if you look for a CRP above 15, then your sensitivity is now 29%, but your specificity is now 92%. And that sort of holds true. And it's not really surprising considering what CRP is meant to do <clears throat> um, for other time points as well. So the... Um, Clinical management of infants without early onset sepsis. So of all these kids that had the CRP, what, how did that um, help or not help the uh, investigators? So of the 7,500 infants without early onset sepsis, 98.7% of them had a CRP obtained on day 0 to 3. And of these, 26% had a CRP of 10 or more, which is, right, which is really concerning because then mm -hmm. what are you supposed to do, right? Um, and what they were describing is that the infants with a CRP of 10 or more were more frequently males born via vaginal delivery at higher gestational ages and with higher birth weights. They were also, and that's the kicker, more likely to be started on empiric antibiotics, received prolonged antibiotics despite negative blood or CSF cultures, right? Because now you don't just give them two days because you give them more because you're like, oh, the CRP was 12. And in truth, they don't have early onset sepsis. They received uh, antibiotics other than penicillin, ampicillin, and gentamicin. Um, they were more likely to have a CSF culture obtained on day zero to three or four to seven days of life and have longer hospital length of stay. And so the last piece of the results, which is interesting, is when they compare, when they moved on to the EOS risk calculator, they found that comparing the two periods among culture-confirmed infection cases, the time from birth to when blood culture was collected and empiric antibiotics initiated was not different between the two periods. There was also no difference in the hospital length of stay between the two periods overall or among term and preterm infants considered separately. The proportions of infants who died or were transferred for higher level of care in the first week after birth and the proportion of infants who died at any time during the hospitalization was also not different between the two periods. So really, them moving away from doing CRP in the early, on, early onset sepsis scenario really did not impact very much. And they sort of mentioned that in their conclusion when they say that in this uh, pre-post cohort analysis, initial CRP testing for early onset sepsis evaluation was not sufficiently sensitive to support decisions to withhold antibiotic treatment. Right. And it's, and I think that's so interesting because you want something that helps you not start antibiotics because you could always find, I, I was, you know, you're thinking about the CRP to start antibiotics, but then you realize I have all the reasons in the world to start antibiotics. I could pin it on some grunting on some anything, but you want something that helps you uh, uh, not start antibiotics. Although later CRP measurements were more sensitive, they were too nonspecific to support decisions to continue treatment. And what we just spoke about, discontinuation of routine CRP use during EOS evaluation was not associated with changes in rate of in rate or promptness of EOS detection or management. Um, and then the last piece I wrote or I copied from their paper was that they said discontinuation of routine CRP use was not associated with more serious adverse outcome, despite 
an associated reduction in rates of antibiotics use. The uh, Using the aforementioned method to test the utility determination, we did not identify a clear advantage of using CRP in EOS evaluation. So it may be 2023, but EOS and CRP is not in vogue still. Sorry, CRP. <laughs> CRP is such a yeah. tough one, though. It's always like, a, you know, you try to get rid of it and it always comes back in some fashion or form. We do love our CRPs. <laughs> well, I think, I think we're all desperate for something, quote unquote, better than our clinical observation <laughs> and our, uh, our, um, our, what's the word? Risk stratification, right? We're you looking struggle for with the cutoffs, data. right? Yeah. Like they said, yeah. okay, 10, but 5 to 15. And when you have get so wide, it's like, what does that mean? Like, in terms of what it corresponds to clinically or, or what that means. And I think that's, it's, it's very hard. Everybody likes a safety net, but it's really hard to sort of correlate what that means in terms of how to interpret. They were smart enough not to get into the weeds of like, trending the CRP because right. we've, we've all done. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because I, I mean, I think that's what I thought was especially salient was when it was most reliable. And that's like, you know, almost you know 12 to 24 hours after um, obtaining blood culture for whatever reason that you felt strongly enough to obtain the blood culture. So that's the certainly yeah. using CRP to rule out infection. Um, that's a, a no. Yeah, that's now. the thing. That's the thing that was <laughs> yeah. that was so impressive is that there's no number where you say, well, above that number or below that number, I have a definite piece of information. Yeah. You never have anything tangible to go on. So <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, then should I do my meningitis paper? <laughs> I don't care anymore. I went first now. It's up to you guys. You, <laughs> you fight it off. <laughs> okay. I'll do the meningitis paper. Um, because we have uh, some of the same stars studied uh, authorship here in this paper. So we might as well move in that direction. Um, this was called Incidence of and Neurodevelopmental Outcomes After Late Onset Meningitis Among Children Born Extremely Preterm. And so, sorry, just in reference to the previous article, this is looking at late onset um, meningitis and infections as compared to the previous article, which was definitively looking at early onset mm -hmm. sepsis. So um, lead author Jane Brumbaugh, um, the uh, senior author, Dr. Uh, Karen uh, Pupilo, but again, some big stars in um, sepsis work uh, and neurodevelopment work, including uh, Dr. Hintz, who um, we just had uh, her interview this last week on the podcast. Um, this was in the JAMA Network Open, um, and the question is really, what is the incidence of um, late-onset meningitis in children born extremely preterm, and what are the outcomes following these episodes of late-onset meningitis? So this is a cohort study, um, but it's really a secondary analysis of a multi-center uh, prospective cohort of children born at 22 to 26 weeks between 2003 and 2007 with follow-up from 2004 to 2021. Um, and again, this is part of um, our major NICHD uh, neonatal research network centers. So um, inclusion criteria, I told you were um, children born 22 to 26 weeks during that time frame. And the exclusion criteria were death before 72 hours after birth, um, any evidence of early onset meningitis. So um, 
within 72 hours after birth, major congenital anomalies, presence of a ventricular shunter reservoir, um, a viral meningitis, a polymicrobial meningitis, so having more than one um, bacteria involved, um, and then uh, missing late onset sepsis or late onset meningitis data. So having the information to decide on, on either of those. And the primary outcomes included, um, uh, late onset sepsis, um, LP performance as part of the late onset sepsis evaluation, which speaks to what you mentioned when we were discussing the previous article. Do you get a LP because you have positive blood culture? Did you get the LP, um, to begin with? Um, and then they wanted to look at the outcomes of neurodevelopmental impairment or death before follow-up. And then um, neurodevelopmental impairment was uh, determined by follow-up at 18 to 22 months using the Bailey 2 or 3, depending on the time point, because we crossed over um, during the study period, and the use of the uh, Polisano gross motor function classification system. They also looked at intracranial hemorrhage um, defined by the papil criteria and severe hemorrhage defined as grades 3 or 4. So I wanted to go over some of the definitions. Um, late onset sepsis was defined as isolation of a bacterial or fungal pathogen from blood obtained more than 72 hours after birth and accompanied by treatment for at least five days or death before completed treatment. Late onset meningitis was defined as isolation of a bacterial or fungal pathogen from CSF obtained more than 72 hours after birth and accompanied by treatment for at least seven days or death before completed treatment. And um, they did uh, touch on cons, which is always a topic of discussion. Um, coagulase negative staph was only considered a pathogen in the CSF if concurrently identified in the CSF and the blood. What and if it was were. a bloody tap? Yeah, I mean, they don't mention that, but it's I'm definitely something to consider. <laughs> Anyways. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just trying to make things tough for you. I'm sorry. It's always tough, right? In the clinical scenario. Anyway, CSM and blood cultures are considered quote unquote concurrent if obtained within seven days of uh, one other. And then uh, the definition for neurodevelopmental impairment included the presence of one or more of the following moderate to severe cerebral palsy with gross motor function classification level of two or greater. Um, uh, a Bailey uh, score um, less than uh 70 if using the Bailey 2 or Bailey 3 score less than 85, bilateral blindness or bilateral hearing impairment. Um, okay, baseline data. So they had 13,372 infants with a median gestational age of 25.4. And then some other baseline uh, characteristics. Mothers of infants with late onset meningitis were younger less likely to deliver by C-section. Uh, they're more likely to have private insurance, have a college degree, or have a hypertensive disorder. Um, infants with either late onset meningitis or late onset sepsis had a lower gestational age and birth weight than infants with neither infection. Um, multiple morbidities, including severe intracranial hemorrhage and PVL, were more common among infants affected by late onset meningitis. Interestingly, later birth year within the study period and severe intracranial hemorrhage remains significantly associated with late onset meningitis. So for the primary outcome, 167 infants or 1% had late onset meningitis. 
4,564 infants, 34% had late onset sepsis without late onset meningitis, if you had both data. And 65% of infants had neither late onset sepsis or late onset meningitis. <laughs> the incidence of late onset meningitis decreased from 2003 to 2017, as did the incidence of late onset sepsis. But of note, the incidence of late onset sepsis is relatively stable between 2011 and 2017. So uh, from 2003 to 2017, there was a decrease. Among those infants with late onset meningitis, 16% occurred in the absence of a concurrent positive blood culture, um, of which 11% occurred in the absence of any positive blood culture during the hospitalization. Therefore, you know, the nod that you can have meningitis without a positive blood culture, especially when you're looking at late onset um, infections. Um, let's talk about the pathogens among the 167 infants with late onset meningitis. The median age for diagnosis was 16 days, um, in general, 10 to 31 days. The incidence of late onset meningitis varied across centers from 0% to 7%. The most common pathogens in the CSF were cons, 60%, candida, 23%, E. coli, 16%, Klebsiella, 9%, GBS, 9%, and Enterococcus. 9%. Now, then they wanted to look at how often did you get the lumbar puncture? So I thought this was really interesting um, data, which complicates how we interpret all of the data altogether. The rate at which lumbar puncture was performed as part of the late onset sepsis evaluation decreased from 36% in 2011 to 24% in 2017. And I told you there was data from 2003, but they didn't have the lumbar puncture data necessarily before 2011. So that's why they used this part of the cohort. Um, so significant difference from 36% to 24%. During this period, 30% had an LP performed as part of the late onset sepsis evaluation. And um, 3% had late onset meningitis. Um, and the, the use of lumbar puncture as part of the late onset sepsis evaluation varied across centers, 10% to 59%. That's, that's the range. A big range. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because they didn't mention, right, and it's, these are big data sets, uh, like you asked, was this done empirically, the LP, or was the LP done, um, you know, after a positive? blood culture. But they do kind of give a hint to that because then they look specifically among infants with late onset sepsis. So um, these are babies who, I don't know if it was before or after the LP, but had a positive blood culture. Um, so LP performance still varied by center. So in babies who had positive blood cultures, a range of 23% to 79%, which I thought was Surprising. Mm -hmm. The incidence of late onset sepsis was relatively stable from 2011 to 2017. However, the performance of lumbar puncture among infants with late onset sepsis decreased from 58% to 45%. The only thing I can think of is that a lot of these babies had cons in the blood, and, and maybe that's why they were less likely to get lumbar punctures. I, I don't know. They didn't speak to that. 
And then um, the last part of their uh, uh, study was really to look at neurodevelopmental impairment. So the cohort was then broken up into three groups, those affected by late-onset meningitis alone, those affected by late-onset sepsis um, uh, without uh, late-onset meningitis, and those affected by neither late-onset sepsis or late-onset meningitis. And they do speak to the fact that not all babies with late onset sepsis got a lumbar puncture. So might some of those babies be in the wrong group potentially? Um, in the babies who had just late onset meningitis point, uh, I'm sorry, 29% died before discharge and the babies with late onset sepsis, but no meningitis, 25% died before discharge. And in the group without either infection, 18% died before discharge. Among survivors, neurodevelopmental impairment was present in 42% of the children with late-onset meningitis and in 43% of children with late-onset sepsis without meningitis, compared to only 33% of children with neither infection. The incidences of cerebral palsy, um, 24%, abnormal visual acuity, 24%, and bilateral hearing impairment, 8%, were highest among infants with a history of late-onset meningitis. The adjusted risk of the composite outcome of death or neurodevelopmental impairment was obviously highest among children with late-onset meningitis, although the adjusted risk was higher among both those with late-onset meningitis and those with late-onset sepsis compared with uh, the infants who had neither infection. Um, In addition, the composite outcome of death or neurodevelopmental impairment was uh, 48% um, still in those children with cons uh, meningitis. So we can't brush cons off as um, not a potentially virulent pathogen. Um, 64% of the children, uh, sorry, um, the composite outcome of death or neurodevelopmental impairment was present in um, 64% of children with non-cons um, late onset meningitis, so higher. And highest, 79% of children with the fungal uh, late onset meningitis. So the take-home message is that uh, in this cohort, 1% of children were diagnosed with late-onset meningitis. 16% of these cases occurred in the absence of a concurrent positive blood culture. And not all the babies who had positive blood cultures got lumbar punctures. So um, it may be higher than that. And those affected by late-onset meningitis had a high incidence of death or neurodevelopmental impairment. Thus, The association of late-onset meningitis with death or neurodevelopmental impairment highlights the importance of lumbar puncture during the evaluation of late-onset infection. Thoughts? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm, disappointed. I'm I'm scared of giving my thoughts. I mean, I mean, it's so, (laughs) oh, I think, I think the conclusions are very accurate. I mean, I think we're going to need to find out if, if we're going to need to do prospective studies and this is usually sort of a wishy-washy answer to say, oh, more studies are needed. But in this (laughs) case, more studies are needed. Right. But in this case, you do. You do need these prospective studies to find out if you are very consistent with your evaluation and whether being consistent and, and attempting the LP as frequently as you can will actually have significant improvement on these infants' outcomes, both short and long-term. Mm-hmm. Because, um, yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, I was looking back after reading this paper about all the things that says, well, you know, if you suspect meningitis, it's hard to, to have a, a strong index of suspicion when it comes mm-hmm. to, to meningitis in these small infants. And, and as you mentioned, in the baseline characteristics, these um, 
these were babies with ranging gestational age, like a median gestational age of 25 weeks. 25 you know, weeks, yeah. Who, who and, were and they do also were diagnosed around like 10 days of life. So yeah, it's, um, it's that's very what they do murky. mention. Yeah. Also, though, that the babies are quite possibly quite sick, right? Not not yeah. stable enough for lumbar puncture. Um, but it's interesting data. But I do sure. feel like, and that's what they yeah. mentioned. It, maybe you had a suspicion for meningitis, so you treated without the lumbar puncture, or you had been on antibiotics already a number of days before the baby attained stability. Yeah. So you didn't think it would be valuable anymore. So there's so many reasons, right? Yeah. But. Yep. Okay. I'm just going to try to be more mindful, I guess. I thought the uh, breakdown of the organisms was, was interesting also. Mm-hmm. Um, just to put into perspective what they're seeing in meningitis. I mean, some of the data is really um, older. And so I was, I didn't expect mm-hmm. that much candida, honestly. Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I, uh, I'm thinking back to just, <laughs> just a year and a half ago, you know, when we we're doing our board review and the, the, the pathogen makeup is, is, seems to be changing a yep. little bit. Right. So. All right, Priya. Okay. All right. Your turn. I'm going to um, present today the article that is Effects of Prophylactic Indomethacin on Morbidity and Mortality in Infants Less Than 25 Weeks Gestation. It's a protocol-driven intention-to-treat analysis. And the first author here is Ron Kleiman from UCSF. This was published in the Journal of Perinatology. So just to like level set the background here, um, clinical trials really haven't shown a benefit for early PDA treatment, but there are several um, studies using large retrospective databases that have reported improved neonatal mor- mortality and morbidity in nurses nurseries that use early PDA screening and or treatment. Um, and there was a meta-analysis of 11,000 very preterm infants that found that prophylactic indomethacin, which I'm going to call PINDO at this point, was associated with a significant, albeit small, reduction in neonatal death. And I think we should hold on. I think ahead. we are. We should at the end of the year give our um, give awards I, I for, best, year. Uh, for best uh, acronym of the year. But I PINDO, agree. PINDO I agree. to start the year, PINDO. I like very much. Yep. So this PINDO um, may act in a gestational age dependent manner, which they're thinking may be uh, beneficial in the sickest and smallest babies. So less than 750, less than 25 weeks. So the question the authors are posing here is, does prophylactic indomethacin um, decrease death or BPD grades two and three in newborns less than 25 weeks. Um, the study design is actually, uh, you know, kind of unique. It's a single center cohort controlled study using data from an ongoing QI project that looked at neonatal outcomes associated with a protocol-driven treatment approach. The interesting thing here is this is done over 17 years. Um, so we had two wow. groups. One were infants admitted during an epoch where all infants were eligible for PINDO, and those then admitted during an epoch where all infants received expectant management, so none received the prophylactic indomethacin. The inclusion criteria were delivery before 25 weeks gestational age, admission to the NICU within 24 hours, and then survival beyond 24 hours. 
So one of the things that the authors here considered is they really didn't have a lot of uh, less than 25 weekers. So like I said, it was over 17 years to, um, to enroll the studies, 106 infants, so 2005 to 2022. And they noted, okay, we know that there are differences in, in care. So they tried to minimize these differences by bracketing the expectant management in the middle. So we had expectant management 2011 to 2017. And it was um, bookended with two PINDO epochs, so 2005 to 2011, and then 2017 to 2022. So in the PINDO group, we had 68 infants. All of these infants were started within 24 hours, providing no contraindications. And it was five potential doses every 24 hours. So 0.2 milligrams per kilogram load, then 0.1 milligrams per kilogram for um, the second, third, and fourth doses. And those third and fourth doses were only given if there was evidence of PDA on the echo after the second dose. Um, and for the expectant management group, it was 38 patients. They did not receive any prophylactic endomethacin. And no infant was treated with endomethacin during the first seven days to allow for spontaneous PDA closure. So mm -hmm. in both of those groups, they did routinely perform the echo on day seven or eight. Um, and the primary outcome here was death before 36 weeks or BPD grades two or three. And they defined BPD with a, a modified room air challenge at 36 weeks. And they used the Jensen criteria to de define PDD. BPD stages. And then the secondary outcomes they looked at were death during hospitalizations, you know, BPD grades two or three alone, severe IVH, pulmonary hemorrhage, neck, or SIP. Um, and so the results, they had a hundred. So, so that's, yeah. so that's interesting that the, the design basically reflects the pendulum swing. So basically yes. they went like treatment, no treatment back to treatment, right? It's, it's so funny. I've never seen that before. I thought mm -hmm. it was really interesting because this is in uh, you know it's a single unit so you know th they realize that practices change changed mm -hmm. and you'll see in the results there are a couple of things that they do note is different are different so okay. they had 111 infants less than 25 weeks gestational age admitted during the study period and only 106 of those survived uh, beyond 24 hours one thing that they noticed in the demographics was that preeclampsia chorioamnionitis and outborn births were significantly associated with the birth year so those changed um, the other thing they noted was the, the, the clinical practice changes. They saw an increased use of endomethacin um, for tocolysis, an increased use of rescue betamethasone for mothers greater than 10 days beyond the first dose, uh, increased use of delayed cord clamping, increased NIV, avoidance of tracheal intubation, ventilation at delivery. Um, but where they did not see any changes were no changes in the initiation or duration of caffeine therapy. They said there are no changes in feeding advances, and they did not use probiotics or vitamin A during any of that time. So, I mean, that definitely, again, Ben, just like you're talking about, shows the changes in practice that we know, right? So 91% of the infants born in the PINDO epoch received indomethacin within the first 24 hours. And only 24% of those kids had a moderate to large PDA shunt at the end of the week. In contrast, when you look at the expectant management epoch, 85% of those babies had a moderate to large shunt at the end of the first week. And from those 85, 45% received indomethacin 
or acetaminophen as rescue therapy um, or rescue treatment after seven days. Uh, one thing that you would expect is that this, there was a statistically significant difference, you know, in the in the observance of a moderate to large PDA at seven days, at 14 days, um, 23 in the expectant management group, and zero in the the uh, prophylactic indomethacin group. Um, obviously, this is, you know, like we've talked about, it's a smaller study. It's over 17 years. Um, it's single center. And so the authors did say, you know, the incidence of PDA uh, and other morbidities could vary. Um, by center, it's not generalizable. Um, we also talked about confounding variables. They did adjust for these, um, but there could have been unmeasured changes that could have affected some of these morbidity rates. Um, overall, so the conclusion was they found no significant differences in the incidence of BPD grades two or three or death or any of the secondary outcomes in unadjusted comparisons. They also uh, created multivariable models to adjust for these confounding effects, but found, again, no significant relationships between the outcomes when prophylactic endomethacin was used routinely in infants less than 25 weeks. I I think this is interesting. I mean, I think, you know, there was a time where people were using um, prophylactic endomethacin in the tiny babies to prevent Mm -hmm. IVH. Um, And so this really shows that there is no difference there. Um, And I don't know, you know, how many people are still doing that, but it's, it's an interesting article and it shows that, you know, you really can track and trend the changes in your unit this way. First of all, it made me feel old because (laughs) you read like the span over 17 years and you're like, oh, like, let me see, like 1990. And you realize it's 2005, like 17 years ago was 2005. And it's like, oh shit. (laughs) It also gives you some perspective, you know, when you have those, when you're a fellow and you have those senior attendings and you're like, how do they remember like all of these things that happened? And you're like, oh, it's happening now. Like I am remembering these changes as like my as my career progresses, so. that's right. That's but I thought it was uh, first of all. I think it was very. I mean, Doctor Kleiman is a is a mm-hmm. household name when it comes mm-hmm. to to PDA. And so, if you haven't, uh, for the audience members who have not read some of his other papers, like he's 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 the guy. And um, and I think it's interesting to see that um, it's it's a it's a frustrating. That's the thing that. Here's the thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna go on out on a limb here, but I'm saying it's a frustrating endeavor for for a very for a minority of patients, right? I mean, it's if you look at it, it's 17 years. They ended up it ended up including about what 100 babies, yeah. And the outcomes were not that pronounced. And we've been what we've been beating this horse for like how many years now? Should we do it? Should we not do it? I mean, it's just one of these. To me, it's a reminder of. Maybe maybe we should just move on and focus on something else. I don't know until something until we have more. <laughs> I don't know, but it's just you read this and you're like, oh my god, 17 years worth of data in a single center. Fine, but I mean, I only work in a single center, so that's going to be right. I mean, uh, and they're working in a in a in a in a large single center, and and that's that's 17 years of back and forth and less than 25 weeks. It's a it's a hundred kids and there's nothing really measurable that they weren't able to notice. It's, uh, but the. Yeah, and and reassured me also of some things like neck and sip similar twenty nine and twenty seven percent between the two groups. So it's like uh, not twenty seven percent. I'm sorry, twenty nine uh, out of the thirty and twenty seven out of the sixty. In the yeah, in the, in the, in the it's interesting what you said about like single center data because 
That is really what matters, right? At every individual institution, because there are so many things that we still don't understand that probably impact, I mean, that do impact all of these outcomes, right? Um, And it's the it's the bundle effect, right? The combination of the way your unit does it yeah. impacts those outcomes. And we can't, that's hard to study, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's, it's interesting. It's also always hard on these, these, you know, 20 year studies, so much of the way we manage babies and the types of babies that we have now are totally different than they were 20 years ago. So and the equipment and the way, you know, all the technology, I also will credit the authors. They did not say more studies are needed. That was not mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) They're done. They're like, that's it. Call it. That's interesting. Okay. This episode is so proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive NFML portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meadjohnson.com. I have... Um, Go ahead, Daphne. I'm sorry. No, did you want me, since we're talking about the PDA, to touch on the Cochrane, or did you want to... Oh, please, please. Okay. Absolutely. I, obviously, um, the Cochrane articles are huge, <laughs> but they do a very good job of summing up uh, the data. I think that anytime one comes out, we should definitely be talking about them and you should know what they say. Um, so I'm going to give you the brief author conclusion, I think. This paper is entitled uh, Paracetamol or Acetaminophen for Patent Ductus Arteriosus in Preterm or Low Birth Weight Infants. Um, uh, authors Bonnie Jasani, Suvik Mitra, and uh, Prakesh Kumar Shah. Um, this is coming to us out of Canada, obviously a big name uh, in, in PDA. Dr. Work. Mitra, who will be a guest uh, a speaker right. at our Delphi conference in March, if you haven't That's yet registered. Right. If you haven't registered or you haven't seen that we released new speakers and we will be releasing new speakers next week. So we have so many speakers coming. It's awesome. Awesome, Well, if you're listening to the podcast now, technically um, the speakers being released will be tomorrow. Will be tomorrow. Yeah. January 9th. Okay, uh, back back to the work. Um, so uh, their objectives were really to look at the efficacy and safety of um, uh, acetaminophen as monotherapy as part of a combination therapy via multiple routes of administration. They compared it with placebo, no intervention, or uh, another prostaglandin inhibitor for either prophylaxis or treatment. So there were many uh kind of therapeutic arms of this meta-analysis. They included RCTs and quasi-RCTs in which uh, paracetamol was compared as I just listed. Um, They included 27 studies enrolling 2,278 infants, um, and uh, they identified 24 ongoing studies. So again, we're already halfway through the show. So I'm just going to give the author conclusion, um, even though there's a lot more information um, to look at in the in this Cochrane paper. And I, for, for all of our trainees, I think the, the Cochrane reviews are so valuable to kind of understand the um, breadth of, of, of papers for any given topic. So I think if you have a question, that's the first place you should go look mm-hmm. and then work backwards. 
Okay, uh, author conclusion. Moderate certainty evidence suggests that there's probably little or no difference in effectiveness between paracetamol and ibuprofen. Low certainty evidence suggests that there's probably little or no difference in effectiveness between paracetamol and indomethacin. Low certainty evidence suggests that prophylactic paracetamol may be more effective than placebo or no intervention. Um, and that's on rates of failure of closure. Um, low certainty evidence suggests that early paracetamol treatment may be more effective than placebo or no intervention. Low certainty evidence suggests that there's probably little or no difference between late paracetamol treatment and placebo, and probably little or no difference in effectiveness between the combination of paracetamol plus ibuprofen versus ibuprofen alone for the closure of PDA after the first course of treatment. The majority of neonates included in these studies were of moderate preterm gestation, thus establishing the efficacy and safety of paracetamol for PDA treatment in extremely low birth weight, so less than 1,000 grams, and extremely low gestational age neonates less than 28 weeks requires further study. So what do you think? <laughs> well, you know... Um, I was really hopeful that Tylenol would help change the conversation. Obviously, the first step of the conversation is: Does the PDA need to be treated? Which PDAs need to be treated? But if you're going to treat, if you're committed to treatment, then you're looking for the most effective therapy with yeah, the least amount of side effects. Yeah. Right? And and the advice I would give uh, trainees and anybody reading these Cochrane reviews is. Obviously, it's nothing to do with the authors, but take a look always at the at the numbers, right? Look at these relative Correct. risks. Look at these confidence intervals. Look at the number of studies that they are able, because mm -hmm. they're able to get a certain number of studies for the entire review, but for Correct. each individual outcome, it's they just may only... a one, two, or a handful, right? Exactly. And in this paper, it actually goes to show you how how difficult of a of a subject this is to study, because even though it's a Cochrane review, you'll see that it's every every outcome is basically like. Three to four studies, uh, maybe like sometimes fifty patients, sometimes a hundred patients. It's not much. It's not much. It's uh, yeah. So and I, I think it speaks to the problem with studying anything, but particularly PDA. Right? The PDAs are different sizes. The the babies are of different gestational ages. Uh, do you do it empirically for all babies, or do you pick the PDAs mm -hmm. to treat? And the studies are so different. Um, that that's what's made the discussion so complicated. Sure. And with the treatment choices, right? So endomethacin, mm -hmm. ibuprofen, acetaminophen, like they're all given at different frequencies. How often are you, you know, what are the side effect profiles? Like, can you give it orally? Can you not? I mean, should you, should you not? Do you have to hold other medications? I mean, I think there's just so much nuance around treating the PDA um, and w which options you have. I don't, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very complex, and it's probably why we have not <laughs> we yeah. have not put our finger on that. And you're so right, Priya, because it's uh, it then creates a whole different realm when you say early. Mm -hmm. Then what is early, and, mm -hmm. and how early are you doing it? How early are they doing yes. it? And, and so it's it's yeah. I have this funny story when I was uh, I think a college or a medical student. I went back home to France and I went to the pharmacy to get some Tylenol. I said, "Can I get some Tylenol?" And they're like, "We don't have that." We don't and have I'm it. Like, what do you mean you don't have it? And then I thought, "Oh, they it's a generic name." So I said, "Can I have some acetaminophen?" And they're like. We don't no, know what that we is. Don't have it. And I'm like, and I'm like, how does a pharmacist not know what acetaminophen is? And and then I went back and my mom's a pharmacist. So I was like, Do you guys don't have acetaminophen? They're like, no, it's called paracetamol. And I'm like, oh, you're fine. I'm a Brit. We called it that too. Uh. <laughs>
But I was like, oh man, I got to go review. Anyway, all right. I have three more papers. Two of them I'm going to bundle. The other one is very, very quick. But Daphna, you're going to be interested in that one, I feel like. Okay. Um, okay. So the two ones that I wanted to review were related to resuscitating babies after birth with an intact cord, you know? Mm-hmm. And the first one is in the Journal of Pediatrics. First author is Jaspreet Singh Reina. It's called Resuscitation with Intact versus Clamped cord in late preterm and term neonate randomized control trial. Uh, the question that they're asking is, would you get better physiological transition from fetal to postnatal life in late preterm and term neonates uh, through resuscitation with an intact cord or with immediate clamping? Um, this was a single-center, open-label, parallel group randomized controlled superiority trial in a tertiary care center in North India. They included babies who were born uh, at 34 or more weeks of gestation in the context of uh, pregnancy or labor complications requiring resuscitation at birth. Uh, And they basically list all the risk factors that would basically trigger a pregnancy to be eligible for the study. Um, They did not uh, consider eligible mothers who had routine uh, routine, uh, deliveries. So I guess I guess probably coincides with when they were called probably to attend those deliveries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they excluded. Uh, they have a long list of exclusion criteria: congenital malformation, chromosomal abnormalities, fetal high drops, and so on and so forth. Let's look at their intervention. So basically, they had two groups. You had intervention with an intact cord, which means that the resuscitation is done with the cord intact by the mother, like by the by the side of the mother, and the cord is clamped around three to five minutes after delivery. Then you have the other group, which is an early cord clamping, which is the usual thing where they actually clamp the cord at 30 seconds. So if you were wondering, we're really talking about preserving evidence-based practices because technically there is evidence to keep uh, to do some delayed cord clamping, but they would basically do 30 seconds and then take the baby away uh, to a resuscitation table away from the mother and do the, the work they had to do over there. So far, so good? And then they used for the primary outcome something that I was not so familiar with called the extended ABGAR scores. And the extended ABGAR score is basically your regular ABGAR score, but then it actually gets inflated to 17 points and includes an additional few categories, which are oxygen, CPAP, PPV, endotracheal intubation, surfactant, chest compression, medications, and so on. And for everything that you do, you get a zero. So that's kind of confusing, right? So you get a zero. And if you don't need to intervene on any of these fronts, you get a one. And so you can get to a max of 17 points. Which, which would be a, a better outcome. Yeah, you would the want higher a higher number. Absolutely. Just like the regular outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because it actually gives you such a, long, a wider range of numbers. So technically, mm-hmm. you can potentially see maybe more differences. Mm-hmm. Secondary outcomes were the Abgar, the Abgar score at one, five, and 10 minutes. Need for PPV, intubation, chest compression, um, um, time of onset of spontaneous respiration, admission to the nursery, cord pH, base success, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to get into the results because I think it's interesting. Remember, this study is taking place in North India, and that's going to be important. 10,000 or so infants were eligible. They were able to consent 496 uh, families. 70, so they, they, they then randomized them to two groups, 250 in each, and they were, they were able to study 71 infants in the intact cord group and 91 in the early clamping group meaning once you consent like the babies have to need interventions because obviously right so you can send them and then maybe the Mm -hmm. baby comes out and doesn't need anything and that's it Mm -hmm. so 
Interestingly enough, the baseline characteristics were similar between the uh, intact chord group and the um, early chord group. The primary outcome of the study, which was the median expanded Abgar score at five minutes, was significantly higher in the intact chord group, 15 versus 14. The expanded Abgar score at 10 minutes was also significantly better in the intact chord group rather than the uh, uh, early chord group. They saw some differences in heart rate. So the heart rate was comparable in the two groups at one minute, but was significantly higher in the early cord, uh, early clamping group at both five and 10 minutes. And so uh, like the intact cord group had a heart rate of like 138 at five minutes, 134 at 10 minutes versus 150 and 154 in the uh, early clamping group. So even though they were higher, on average, they were, they were still normal. Uh, the oxygen saturation was higher in the intact cord group at 1, 5, and 10 minutes. The duration of PPV and the time to spontaneous breathing effort were significantly lower in the intact cord group. So that's interesting. The duration of PPV mm -hmm. and time to spontaneous breathing effort were significantly lower in the intact mm -hmm. cord group. What really struck me were the two following outcomes. A significantly lower proportion of neonates in the intact cord group needed NICU admission 20 versus 34%. Mm. So they were able to reduce their NICU admission by 15%. The mean cord gas pH was significantly higher in the intact cord group and the lower proportion of neonates in the intact cord group had a pH of less than seven. Both hematocrit and bilirubin at 24 hours were significantly higher in the intact cord group, but the need for partial exchange and phototherapy uh, were not different between the two groups. The conclusion is that in late preterm and term neonates, resuscitation with an intact cord is feasible, safe, and results in better physiological transition than the standard of practice of early cord clamping followed by resuscitation. I think this is, I think to me, we've I've, we've known about this for some time now, right? I mean, the evidence keeps coming in that this is feasible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and to me, it's data from low to middle income countries where they're seeing dramatic reduction in the utilization of their resources that are precious to begin with, mm -hmm. that is going to drive this to become standard of care, I think, um, because they're able to reduce lower pH, they're, they're able to reduce NICU admissions, um, and that's very much, very much feasible. Um, I want to go on to the next paper, but I'm going to let you weigh in before I, before I do that this way, I can pull up my notes for the other one. Well, I mean, I think it's exciting and I think it's exciting not just for low middle income countries, right? We're, I we're agree. studying it here in the States and, and I'm looking forward to seeing that data. What I think is interesting is <laughs> like, why are you born? Uh, these are late preterm to term infants, but for some of these infants and as we push the technology, right? Um, Sometimes the placenta is part of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, picking the right group of babies for for this type of resuscitation, um, I think will be important. And so, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to use a healthy population who mostly made it to term, hoping right. that the so, placenta is so, so I didn't, useful. I obviously did not mention that because it, it uh, to me, it went without saying, but these were exclusion, these were definite exclusion right. criteria of right. the study. Abruption, cord right. anomalies, placenta yeah. accreta, percreta, uh, previa, uh, ruptured uterus, etc. Yeah. So, so for sure, I think we're, right. I think we're hopeful that, um, using this in this, 
smallest, most fragile babies will help with the transition. But many of them are delivered early because there's a, a problem with the, you know, placental in uterine environment. So anyways, it's exciting. It's it re- exciting. It re- I can't wait to it see. It reminds me of phototherapy when... That's right. Middle income countries started doing phototherapy, and in yeah. the U.S., we were we were not using phototherapy. We were above we were, it, <laughs> or because we the 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 evidence never really translated over. And yeah. I feel like sometimes some some people are going to come to uh, more developed countries and say, "Why are you not resuscitating by the mother's bedside? Like, why are you cutting the cord mm-hmm. and moving away? Like, there's right mm-hmm. and and it's just it reminds me of these of these, of these stories. Anyway, Priya, and uh, you did a great review of the history of phototherapy in our board review podcast. So if somebody favorite, if you have if you're not familiar with it, check it out. That's right. Story well, I need to go listen to that then. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> really good. Um, the next study is in the Journal of Pediatrics. It comes from New Zealand. It's from Elizabeth Neville and colleague, colleagues, and it's called Effect of Breathing Support in Very Preterm Infant, Not Breathing During Deferred Cord Clamping, a randomized control trial. It's called the ABC study. Very interesting paper. They looked at... Um, they were saying, in the, and we're going to give you some background information. There's improved survival that's been noted in infants who are born less than 34 weeks, where the cord is clamped at 30 seconds or later compared to kids who have immediate cord clamping. So far, so good. We've talked about that. We know that. But the question they were asking or the, the group was wondering is that what if the baby undergoing delayed cord clamping is not breathing spontaneously? And this group had actually published a study in 2015 that showed how these infants were the babies who were getting delayed cord clamping, who were not breathing well during the delayed cord clamping, were more likely to be intubated. They were more likely to have uh, chronic lung disease and severe uh, IVH. Now, um, I actually went back to look at this study, and it's a small study. I think I think they, were, they had like 34 infants in the group that was breathing versus 12 in the group that was not breathing. So it was a small study. But that's the background section. The question they're asking is, would preterm infants who are not breathing at birth benefit from some PPV with an intact cord? And they hypothesized that if this is what they found in 2015, that these kids had more BPD, more intubation, more IVH, maybe by providing them PPV while the cord is uh, being uh, clamped or delayed clamping, then you will improve all these uh, variables. It was a single center study. They, they enrolled babies who were born at less than 31 weeks undergoing delayed cord clamping, providing that they were either not breathing or making irregular, non-sustained breathing efforts. They excluded a bunch of things, placental abruption, as we've said, severe fetal growth, et cetera, et cetera. And they basically, the babies were born and they assessed the baby's breathing for about 15 seconds. So the baby is born, they look at the baby, 15 seconds. The intervention group received uh, positive pressure ventilation on the mom's thigh, so like really by the introitus over there. Uh, The control group just got uh, uh, gentle tactile uh, stimulation. So even though they were not really breathing spontaneously well, they would just get like the usual, you know, rub the back kind of thing, and then they would wait until they could do delayed cord clamping. Um, and then the, the cord was clamped at around 50 seconds. And the primary outcome of the study was blood transfusion during the NICU admission. And the secondary outcomes were composite of death, uh, chronic lung disease, or severe IVH. They had other secondary outcomes, including the APGAR scores, delivery room resuscitation, requirement for intubation, temperature, etc. 130, 113 infants were eligible. They randomized 57 in the intervention, 56 in the control. Um, Maternal and infant characteristics were similar between the groups. The thing that was interesting, and I think, again, it's worth mentioning, in all cases, the neonatal team member was able to carry out the required procedure 
by standing adjacent to the surgeon, wrapping and positioning the baby, and providing the required ventilation. I think we need to have papers mention that that information. Mm-hmm. It is feasible. It's easily done. There's There were no issues. In no cases was the cord too short. Similarly, the intervention proved feasible in all eligible vaginal births. The proportion of infants transfused between the groups were similar, 28% versus 30% in the control. Um, the median number of transfusion received and the median difference between groups of, uh, in total milligrams of per kilogram of red cells was 10 ml and was not difference, was not significantly different between the two groups. The number of infants in the composite outcome of death before discharge, chronic lung disease, and severe IVH was similar between both groups. Providing brief early, the conclusion is that providing early, brief early PPV in preterm infants who were not breathing during DCC did not significantly improve findings during the early transitional period or in relation to the assessed neonatal outcomes. Having a skilled neonatal attendant alongside the delivery in either the operating room or birthing suite may facilitate achieving the desired timing of cord clamping with more than 90% of infants attaining the 52nd target in our study. So remember, this is different from the Indian study where they really did the whole thing by the mother's bedside. This was just while delayed cord clamping was happening, 30 to 50 seconds, right? But uh, I thought this was an interesting study nonetheless uh, because it sort of came to negate some of the findings from that small study that they had before where uh, really it didn't make a difference whether they were providing that PPV at the bedside. And so it's nice when you have a paper coming to follow another paper to actually answer some of the lingering questions uh, and so I, that's why I sort of wanted to to discuss these two uh, these two articles. Well, I think it does highlight the ability to perform delayed cord clamping, right? Because sometimes, depending on what attention is being given to this infant getting delayed cord clamping, sometimes it's not much attention, right? That's when you really can get into trouble, or you have to. Um, you have to abort delayed cord clamping because the the baby has deteriorated in front of your eyes. But I mean, I think, I think this showed that even just having somebody attend to the baby and stimulating the baby and during that time is very important. And it may not, it, our, our OB colleagues may not be the right person for the job, is all I'm saying. They have other stuff to They're worry busy. about. They're busy. They're <laughs> busy, right? They got a lot going on. They have right? a lot going on. There's a lot of, yeah. uh, f- of, there's a lot of fluids and blood and stuff going on yeah. over there. So, but I think so. that was interesting because if you had just uh, left it at their study from 2015, you may say, well, you know, you're doing delayed core clamping and during those 15 seconds, these kids were not breathing well, then they're going to have worse outcomes. Right. And it was super nice to see that, like, no, they actually went back and when they did fix that, it didn't make that much of a difference, mm-hmm. which again goes to show that sometimes small studies are difficult to generalize because it was mm-hmm. a small study in 2015. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I digress. Priya, you have one more? I do have one more. That's I'm going to try and um, sort of go through this um, because so, it is so, a ancillary study. Don't, yep. uh, you don't, I mean, I, I know we're a bit over time, but okay. we're going to, since we started publishing the, the podcast and also we are providing the little uh, oh, individual yes. bits. Okay. So we're okay. I think, I think okay. if we go a little bit over, don't, don't feel like you need to rush. Just uh, Plus, do this justice. we never, we never don't go over. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll just keep on going. So That's, yeah, I'm going to um, present um, risk of seizures in neonates with hypoxic ischemic encephalitis receiving hypothermia plus erythropoietin or placebo. And this is first author, Hannah Glass. You are all familiar with the HEAL study. So this is an ancillary study from that. Um, And it was published in Pediatric Research. Um, 
And so just a, just a reminder, the HEAL study was looking at, you know, EPO versus placebo for neuroprotective um, results in neonates with moderate to severe HIE, and it showed no difference in the groups in the rate of death or disability at age two to three years. What the study didn't do is it didn't assess the timing and the electrographic seizure burden. So that's the purpose of the study. The question is, is really what's the effect of EPO on provoked seizures as compared to placebo? Um, And the group hypothesized that it would have a lower risk burden. So one thing I'm going to say here is that, um, you know, EPO has been shown to decrease both acute and late seizures in animal models. And I did not know as a pharmacist that there is an FDA label warning in adults that this is pro-convulsant. It's based on old trials in the adult population with renal disease. And what we don't know in neonates is, is this applicable to our babies? We know that there's been small studies um, with EPO, but most of these actually lacked the gold standard, which is the video EEG monitoring for seizure diagnosis. Um, so like I mentioned, this is a ancillary HEAL study. It used seven sites from the HEAL study. Um, and what you had to be to be eligible for this study was obviously part of the HEAL study, but you had to have a CEEG recorded without interruption throughout cooling and rewarming, um, except for those babies that died during admission. And that EEG quality had to be Um, really high quality, sufficient for interpretation by a neurophysiologist for review. They also looked at the anti-seizure medications, the timing of these drugs, um, and the CEEGs were de-identified and independently reviewed by two neurophysiologists. Um, The definition of seizure was a sudden abnormal EEG event with repetitive and evolving pattern with a peak Uh, with a minimum two microvolt peak-to-peak voltage and duration of at least 10 seconds. They gave a definition for status epilepticus, and that was defined as a sum duration of seizures comprising greater than or equal to 50% of any one-hour epoch of the recording, and only the um, electrographic confirmed seizures were considered. So anything that was considered a clinically detected seizure was not considered for the study. So that is an important fact to remember. So the primary outcome here was looking at the EEG maximal seizure burden in minutes per hour after EPO administration among neonates with seizures. They did um, quite a few secondary outcomes. So the response to the initial dose of the anti-seizure medication defined as no seizures Uh, No further seizures greater than 30 minutes after a loading dose until the end of the recording. Um, They looked at overall seizure burden, the seizure period, and then the presence of status epilepticus. So um, there were 235 patients randomized in the HEAL study. About 11% of those patients did not have the CEEG file uh, available. Um, and what the authors did here or in the study is they took 185 of the CEEGs, reviewed them to reach what they had determined was the appropriate sample size of 150. So we had 83 in the EPO group, 67 in the placebo group. Um, and we saw that the first dose of EPO was administered at a median of about 18.5 hours. Uh, 20 out of the 150, or 13%, died. Six with CEEG removed prior to completing the 72-hour monitoring period. Um, and there were no significant differences between the groups in maternal characteristics, pregnancy, 
and delivery complications, the infant characteristics, including the severity of the encephalopathy, or the EEG monitoring. So that's, that's something. I mean, their 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 um, inclusion of continuous EEG monitoring was so thorough. Yeah. I mean, the quality of the EEG that they use, like there was no doubt. Like, they, I mean, right? Like you said, they had like about two. They had a hundred about in each, and they reviewed them and they excluded the one that were low quality. So whatever they were left with was really super reliable. And these are still high numbers, right? Eighty three, you said mm-hmm. in the in the um, in the. Uh, in the EPO group and 67 high quality EGs mm-hmm. in the in the in the plus in the placebo. That's phenomenal. And they even had extra. So there was extra. They just went through the first 185 to meet their 150. So they, that was mm-hmm. one of the things that they talked about was the limitation. They didn't review all of them. Right. Um, but so electrographic seizures occurred in 46 out of 150 of the patients. So 31%. But there was no difference between um the placebo and the APO group. The timing of the seizures, so 27% were before the study drug um, was given, 27% were between the first and second dose, 11% after the second dose. But again, similar rates in both groups, EPO versus placebo. Um, Anti-seizure medications, so 36% in the EPO group versus 54% in the placebo group. Um, They also found no meaningful difference in the medium maximal hourly seizure burden after the first dose of study drug between both groups. So an EPO is about 18.1 minutes per hour and the placebo is 21 minutes per hour. Um, 43 of the patients or 29% received um, an anti-seizure medication loading dose. And of those, uh, only 30% had a complete response to that. Remember saying, you know, was it after that do- initial loading dose, did the seizure go away after 30 minutes? Um, and so um, the thing that they did find here is that EPO-treated patients had a lower complete response to the medications, uh-huh. 5 out of 24 or 21%, as compared to placebo, which was 8 out of 19 or 42%. But when you adjust for the severity and the baseline seizure burden prior to the first study drug, drug dose, there was no difference between the group. Um, The seizure burden was higher in in the EPO group, so 63.8 versus placebo 31.5. But again, when considering the total CEG recording time and the percentage of the time with seizures, there was not a significant difference. Um, And the median period over which the neonates had seizures was 16.3 hours, and that was not significantly different between the groups. Um, Status epilepticus was present in 10 out of 46 patients, so 22%, and it occurred more frequently among the neonates treated with EPO. So 35% versus 5% in the placebo group. Again, not statistically different when you adjust for the pretreatment seizure burden and the HIV severity. So in conclusion, this data really doesn't align with the animal research. Um, You know, HEAL was EPO plus hypothermia. So maybe there's a thought that these two act on similar mechanisms in terms of, you know, the injury cascade. Um, What about like the timing? So should it have been given earlier? Would that have made a difference? Um, or what about the dosing? Was it suboptimal? So I think, you know, there are a couple of things that they sort of um, uh, uh, say could be a reason why we're not seeing what we see in the animal models. 
Um, and one thing to note here is that there is a low, lower seizure rate than anticipated and previously published in studies. So we said that the seizure rate was um, 30%, about, yeah, 31%. And in other published studies, it's anywhere from 34 to 65%. Um, oh. Could be, you know, improved OB care, neuroprotective measures that we're doing now, um, that that data might be older. Um, the other thing to remember here is that seizure identification and treatment was at the discretion of the local care team. So it was not um, standardized in this protocol. Um, and when looking at the anti-seizure medications, they didn't look at interactions with those plus EPO. And there was a lot of differences in the anti-seizure medication use. Um, but that could have been... <laughs> based on what they were treating, right? Like, was it a clinically um, detected seizure? Was it one that was an EEG seizure? Um, So that was definitely... Did you mention that the burden was higher, right, in in one of the groups, right? The seizure Uh burden was higher in the the EPO group, so it's sort of... Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think overall, they say the findings are consistent with the overall trial results that do not support EPO for neonates with HIE undergoing therapeutic hyperthermia. There's no significant increase in risk and seizures after EPO admin, but there's a potential for worse seizures. Um, And so they talk about total seizure duration, overall maximal hourly seizure burden, seizure period, and status epilecticus. Um, And so, you know, one of the other things that they they mention is that they did not find that it was a proconvulsant um, or any type of effect that they had seen in adults. So they did confirm that. Um, but it does, it does align well with the HEAL study in the sense that, you know, we don't need to be using EPO probably in these patients. Right. Yeah. Oof. Well, I think that, that yeah. does it uh, for EPO. Dis- disappointingly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it still was an important um, study because we use EPO for other things, right? In sure. the in the NICU, so I thought it was um, interesting. Um, I have one more paper. Oh, okay. <laughs> I actually have two more papers, but I'm going to do this short one and save the the the, the last one for next time. Um, this is called targeted new screening for congenital cytomegalovirus infection. Clinical, audiological, and neuroimaging findings. Lead author. Uh, Pew Chung, um, senior author Anne Vossen. This is in the Archives of Disease and coming to us from the Netherlands. Um, this is to evaluate clin- the, these clinical, audiological, and neuroimaging findings in a cohort of infants who uh, were eventually diagnosed with congenital CMV after failure of newborn hearing screening. I think this is an important paper um, to, again, just highlight the findings in congenital CMV, um, but that we should have a really high um, suspicion for CMV and the babies who fail the newborn hearing screen. Um, And some institutions are moving to um, universal screening for CMV for babies who fail um, the hearing test. And I think this adds to that data. So the study design, they have a pretty robust hearing screening infrastructure in the Netherlands. Um, They, babies go kind of staged, um, screening. And after failing the third round, infants are referred to this regional audiology center. 
Um, and so CMV testing was offered to all referred infants. Um, trial subjects were then uh, underwent screening consisting of medical history, physical exam, laboratory assessments. Um, and I will tell you more about that. So the, this, the study period was July 2012 to November 2016. Um, 1,381 children were enrolled for CMB testing again after failing um, the hearing screen. Um, and I think they said that in general, the hearing failure, hearing screening failure is about 0.3%. Um, so uh, these were babies who failed the hearing screen um, and 1% something happened with the CMB testing. So they didn't have that data in seven infants. CMB was confirmed in 59 infants, 4.3%, um, which is much higher um, than our uh, baseline CMV um, incidence. And no CMV infection in uh, 1,315 infants, 95%. But of the CMV infected infants, um, uh, most of them were still uh, born at term, average 39.3 weeks. Gestational ages ranged, ranged from 32 to 42 weeks. Um, they had significantly lower birth weights and smaller head circumferences. Um, they did undergo ophthalmologic. <laughs> ophthalmologic exams, and 33 of the 59 um, infants uh, uh, had optho exams without any abnormalities found. One infant had abnormal bilirubin in transaminases uh, that persisted. 48 or 89% um, of those infants uh, with CMV were diagnosed um, with sensory neurohearing loss or mixed hearing loss. And of those, 24 or 50% of infants had bilateral hearing loss. In the infants with bilateral hearing loss, 34 ears or 71% were found, 71% of the ears uh, were found to have severe or profound hearing loss. And 20 of the infants or 83% with unilateral hearing loss were also diagnosed with severe or profound hearing loss. So we know that hearing loss is associated with CMV, but um, the hearing loss was was significant in this cohort. Um, neuroimaging was um, available in 48 out of the 54 infants. Um, they did head ultrasounds in 24, MRI in 6, and both head ultrasound and MRI in 18 infants. Head ultrasound was performed at a median of 67 days. Um, the median age of MRI was 219 days. So often the MRIs followed abnormal head ultrasounds. Um, abnormalities were found in 40 of the 48 children who had neuroimaging. So 83%. 34 or 71% had mild abnormalities. Um, 3 or 6% had moderate abnormalities. And 3 or 6% had severe abnormalities. The moderate abnormalities included severe ventriculomegaly, temporal lobe involvement, and diffuse white matter signal abnormalities, which one might consider severe. And then the severe abnormalities found were polymicrogyria in all three patients. One patient additionally showed extensive calcifications, atrophy, and dysgenesis, dysgenesis of the corpus callosum. In addition, there was a significant correlation between severity of neuroimaging abnormalities and sensory neural hearing loss. Um, so in general, these were babies that were not being evaluated for CMV, except that they missed 
that they um, failed their newborn hearing screens. So I think pretty abnormal findings with significant implications for neurodevelopment. Yeah, I think, as you said, until universal screening does or does not become a thing, then screening babies who failed hearing must is, is, yeah, at least, is right. it's the way to go. I think that's such a practical, for practical sure. piece of information. If you're not screening, if a baby fails the hearing screen in your unit and you're not checking for CMV, then maybe, maybe review that evidence and decide if that's something yeah. you want to implement. That's why I felt like I had, to, I had to do this paper today because this is something I'm going to take to the bedside. I have today. a question for you guys. So the way that they check for CMV was via PCR, like dried blood spots. Is that the way that you mm. all would check or is it urine? Because I remember I was in a, I, Nikki, where I worked, was doing a study with urine, see, looking at CMV in the urine. So I didn't know if that was, is that universal that that's the way you check? I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of variability. So, yeah. There's a lot of variability. And I think uh, I was listening to a talk at the Miami conference recently by Pablo Sanchez from mm -hmm. uh, from Columbus, Ohio, who was mentioning that uh, um, urine PCR is is the way to go, um, especially in the first like couple weeks of life. And he was even saying, and I'm and I'm only quoting that the cotton balls can fool you that he's had mm. he's had uh, false negatives with yeah. the cotton balls and he says just he would say i would uh, i would order uh, pcr from the urine okay. and he, he seemed pretty intense he would talk about like confirmatory <laughs> tests and stuff but that was something to me that was uh, cuz you can check uh, cmv igms in the blood mm -hmm. you could check uh, many other ways but it it looks like CMV PCR from the urine should be the way to go. Okay. Yeah. I mean, these dried blood spots are convenient because you might also be doing like the discharge PKU, right? So it would, you'd be doing the same thing. Um, but also you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to get blood if you do the, the urine CMV PCR, since we have moved away from urine uh, CMV cultures, which used to be the standard. But. Okay. Can I do one last one? You guys are going oh, to Oh, you just couldn't help yourself. No, it's, it's <laughs> because it's not really a, it's not really a, I mean, it is a study Fine. technically, Okay, but listen to this. I was, I think this paper was shared on Twitter by Ibinio. It's called Adverse Effects of COVID-19 Pandemic on a Multi-Center Randomized Control Trial. It's the ICAF study group. It's in the Journal of Perinatology. It's done in the US. They're talking about how- That wasn't even on your list of papers to do. You just couldn't help yourself. I was reading that last night. And I was like, <laughs> we got to talk about it. <laughs> Uh, they were talking about how the COVID-19 pandemic has significantly disrupted uh, family, community stability. Uh, it has also increased stress on healthcare providers, families, decreased the research activity of investigators and study, and study coordinators. Um, and then it has exacerbated parental stresses typically associated with NICU admission, including visitation restrictions. So what they did is that they're here to report the effects of COVID-19 on their trial, the ICAF trial, which is basically the intermittent hypoxia and caffeine in infant born preterm, uh, a multi-center trial that involved uh, both inpatient and post-discharge protocol. So I'm not going to get into too much what the ICAF study is. Basically, they were trying to see if you could continue caffeine after 34 weeks, and then they would follow these kids at home, and they were looking at intermittent hypoxia. That almost... That almost does not matter. But for the purposes of the study, they, um, they, um, uh, they, they, were, they had this data coordinating center that was able to track the number of infants who became eligible for the study and who were approached, not approached, and what were the reasons for parental refusal of consent. And they created these four epochs where they looked at pre-COVID, 
they looked at COVID-1 and COVID-2. So pre-COVID was December 2018 to uh, March 2020. And then they had the COVID-1 epoch, which is March to July, which is like the when when the world was in chaos, where there was lockdown, um, severe restrictions on the clinical sites, suspended all clinical research activity, etc. Then they have a COVID-2 epoch, which was from August to March of 2020, August 2020 to March 2021, which is sort of like the beginning of the recovery when sort of the peak had passed. And then they have the post COVID-1 epoch, which is from March 2021 to November, which is sort of um, recovery from uh, the peak adverse of the pandemic. And then they have the post-COVID-2, which is basically where we are now. Okay, And they're going to look at how did these phases of time affected their study. Um, what's interesting is that they, they um, because of the different restrictions, uh, despite the onset of the pandemic in March 2020, all clinical sites were able to continue entering infants in the screening log. So they were able to know which babies were eligible. However, only one site was permitted to continue any other clinical research activity during the peak pandemic epochs, including parent interactions and approaching during consent. Um, during the peak pandemic epoch and beginning of recovery, several site-specific actions were approved to try to mitigate some of that, which included uh, approval by telemedicine, red cap consents, and so on and so forth. So what's interesting is that they noticed, I'm going to go over the results fairly quickly, but over the three and a half years, 2,760 infants were screened, of which uh, 700 and something were eligible. Um, they saw differences in the ethnicities of the families who were approached. Um, so the families of eligible subjects approached for consent differ significantly on race and ethnicity from those of those who were not approached. Uh, and you can look into that in the paper. Compared to the 32% of uh, not approached rate for consent in the non-Hispanic white reference group, 44.9% of Hispanic families were not approached. Um, of families who were approached, consent rate varied significantly among uh, non-Hispanic whites, 28%, non-Hispanic blacks, 20%, Hispanic, 8%, and non-Hispanic other, 12.8%. So, like... This is shocking, and 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 so I was. That's why I mean. That's why I'm bringing this up now. I was just like I was reading mm. this. I was like, man. During the pre-COVID epoch, research staff were able to approach the families of 95% of eligible infants. During the initial pandemic lockdown, COVID one epoch, only 13% of eligible infants could be approached for consent. The percent of eligible families approached for consent has gradually improved improved since COVID one. Um, 59%, then 71%, and then 84.9% over the COVID-2, post-COVID-1, and post-COVID-2 epoch, respectively. But they remain significantly less than in the pre-COVID epochs. How crazy is that? Differences in approach rate across study epochs compared to pre-COVID remain significantly lower after controlling for race, ethnicity, through multiple logistic regression. Um, and I guess I'm going to stop here. But the bottom line is that there were restrictions, right? That so the, so it highlighted or it it widened some some disparities that mm -hmm. uh, that were probably already underlying, and that the administrative restrictions to approaching families definitely got the numbers to go down from like ninety five percent to thirteen percent, 
but that the COVID pandemic had an effect that they were never really able to recover back to where they were pre-pandemic. And I think that's fascinating because the effect on the information we're going to be able to get from clinical studies is affected by this pandemic. And, and I had not thought about that very much. I've, I heard it anecdotally when I talked to uh, neonatologists, study coordinators, you hear about it. It's great that they publish this because I think it will, like you said, you don't really realize that some of these studies were put on hold for a really long time. They lost research coordinators or that there was no mm-hmm. resources to keep these moving. Um, and yeah, I didn't think of the effect it was going to have on studies being published or on trials being completed. All I, I knew is that everybody was on holding pattern. Um, mm-hmm. And then just to hear that it still hasn't really gotten back to where it was is is alarming. Because you assume that because you can't access, you decrease visitation, that has been published as well, that like lower yeah. visitation, you're like, okay, so it's going to go down. But the fact that uh, there's a scar and a, and a stigma from this that's continuing, um, yeah, it's it's uh, surprising. And does that have to do with parents having to weigh so many clinical decisions for mm-hmm. their own with COVID and stuff that they're saying, like, I'm not doing any experimental stuff because of oh, yeah. what we went through COVID? God knows. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think... There's been a lot of distrust in the medical system also, right? Uh, uh, that, that was a chasm that we we were teetering on, and I think the pandemic made it worse, sadly. Um, so I think that's going to be an ongoing problem for, for research. But I, I think I'm glad that you presented um, the paper because it does highlight still this tremendous ongoing disparity uh, we have particularly racial disparity in in research um, and applicability, right? Uh, uh, and um, does the research represent our patient populations? So I think that's interesting. Yeah, and it's yeah. and it's and it's uh, it's always another thing that I mean, we try to identify these variables that you can potentially uh, these knobs that you can dial, and then it's like I had not thought of the pandemic as something mm-hmm. that we had to now sort of was correct for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I'm, in now in studies, will they say like, you know, one of our limitations for enrollment was the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. A lot they of have. the studies yeah. have been. Yeah. yeah they have. have been, so, yeah. Many of them have, but yeah. the fact that some of these studies are now lagging behind because yeah. they're, they, it's crazy. Anyway, you see, I knew this was going to so, generate some so, discussion. Yeah, much, much props to all of our our, um, our, our folks doing clinical research yes. because, gosh, it was hard as it is, and um, and it's even harder now. You know, I was thinking about that this this morning as I was walking the dog, preparing for journal club. Mentally. Is that how you prepare for the for the journal club? Is that no? That's just something I had to do this morning. But anyways. <laughs> Um, I was thinking, you know what, we, the papers go into publication and they're in this journal and we talk about them at some, uh, at some, um, conferences and we, we review the paper, right? It takes us anywhere between five and 30 minutes to review the paper, but gosh, the work, the work that goes into these studies is just tremendous, 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 tremendous. And that's why even though... This is the theme of the show. There's always something to learn. Even if the outcomes were not different, even if you say, oh, well, we were hoping the hypothesis was not really proven. There's always something to learn from all that work that's being done. There's no way that people can spend this much time doing all this work and that you could come up with a conclusion. There's nothing good for me to learn here. That's right. For sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Okay. 
we're going to conclude the show. Uh, for the people who are traveling this year, uh, we have our uh, traveling circus as well. Daphna, you are next going on the road, right? So you are mm-hmm. going to, where are you going Scottsdale. next? Scottsdale. Scottsdale, February. For which conference? Well, we have a local conference here, but the, then we'll be going to Scottsdale. <laughs> uh, I wish, so you know what? Actually, I wish I was, uh, I was going to mention the conference we're going to here in Florida on January 20th, but I didn't get, we were asking them for some details and I haven't received, I would like to give people more detail. I don't have all these details. So when Claire sends us uh, the deets, we will, we will give them props, mm-hmm. but uh, you're going to be, what is, what is in Scottsdale? What is, what is it? When is it? Uh, February 3rd through the 5th, the AAP Scottsdale conference. The AP Scarzel Conference. All right. So if you guys want to meet, I won't be there, um, but I Daphna know. will be there. So you get to meet uh, Daphna and uh, and ask her all the questions that uh, <laughs> you have on your mind. Uh, and then we'll be yeah. all over yeah, in we'll, March. We'll, we'll do it one at a time. I think we can do okay. it. We can do them one at a time. So for now, uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. Thank you guys very much, Priya. This was fun. Thank you again for joining. Mm-hmm. I really uh, appreciate your pharmaceutical inputs, your EPO mm-hmm. uh disclosures were actually something that I was not aware of. So um, <laughs> agreed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it was fun guys. Uh, we'll see you next time. Sounds yeah, good. Bye. bye. Thank you for listening to the incubator podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple podcast or the Apple podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast, or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.